Happy New Year. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. Hey, I want to tell you a story. About three years ago, I was invited to speak at this event that was called the American Friends of Ariel. Now, you've probably never heard of that. Ariel is a city in uh, ancient Samaria in Israel. So if you can imagine, if you're familiar with a little bit of the geography of Israel, you know that Galilee is up in the north, Jerusalem is towards the south, and uh, Ariel is in Samaria. It's kind of somewhere in the middle, kind of in central Israel. Well, they basically took this city, which was all, it was all desert, and they built this city kind of in the middle of nowhere, and it's thriving and prospering and doing very well. And so they have this event that happens here in Miami once a year, and um, it's basically a fundraiser, and then they honor people who have been who have helped the city uh, of Ariel over the course of the previous year. And so I was invited to be one of the speakers because uh, a friend of mine was being honored that night. So I was asked to speak and to introduce him. And um, so anyway, I put on my monkey suit and drove over there. Uh, and uh, the I was I looked at the schedule when I got there, and um, I was at, in the program. I was going to speak right after. Um, a local rabbi was going to speak, and so I was looking forward to hearing him. And so I'm sitting there at the table. There's all these round tables people are sitting at. I'm sitting with my friend who's going to be honored that night. And this rabbi gets up, and he starts talking. And uh, he, had just, he, talk, he had 15 minutes to talk. And um, he gave the most, like, incredible talk, one of the best talks I've ever heard in my life. Um, he just told the story of Esther. But he told the story of Esther in a way that I'd never heard of it, heard it before. Um, he talked about the story of Esther and the struggle of the Jewish people. And the story of Esther didn't just happen back then. It continues to happen over and over. And as long as the Jewish people struggle, the story of Esther continues to be relived. And it was amazing to me as I was very moved listening to him. And I was looking around. And I mean, I, people are getting choked up. I see people like tears in their eyes. And then... And I, and then what was happening was that as I'm, I was kind of caught up in his, his, his talk that he was giving, and then I realized, like, I go on right after him. Now, there's a big thing, like, when you're a speaker, the last thing you want to do is go on right after a guy who gives an amazing speech. You want to go after a guy who bombs, and then they, it just makes you look even better. Well, this guy is, like, just blowing everyone, including me, away, I mean, what, what he's talking. And I realized it, so I turned to the person that I know that, that's sitting next to me, and I'm like... This guy's telling the story of Esther. I mean, it's his story. I've got a, my my big story is a story about a Burger King. True story. I mean, I mean yeah, I, because that was my that was kind of like my whole thing and about how I, I I got my introduction to Judaism and understanding uh, what Judaism was all about was one day I was sitting in a Burger King uh, with a friend of mine who who was uh, who, who was Jewish and it was around the time of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and all that. So I was kind of building it. My big thing is about being in Burger King. He's telling the story of the last four thousand years of the Jewish people and they're crying. And I'm like, that or a Whopper, uh, which is going to go over better, you know? And I'm thinking like, this is not going to go well. And so I, I I'm like, and I just said to him like, you know. I am like dead unkosher meat over here. You know, I'm just, this is not going to go well. Uh, thankfully, I got up and told my story, and it went over really, really well. Nobody cried, uh, although I think many people bought Whoppers after. Um, but, but the thing is this, is that I got home that night, and I actually told my wife what happened. And I said, I said someday, someday, um, I am going to teach the book of Esther, and hopefully I'll be able to tell it and teach it with the same passion and conviction that I heard that night. And so that's why we're here. 
We're here, we're kicking off a new year, we're embarking on a new journey, and it's through the book of Esther. The name of this series is Engage. Unleash the power of now. And the reason why it's called that, because at the very core, this book of Esther is really about doing the thing that God has called you to do in the place that God has called you to do it. And that sometimes one of the things that we do is that we're looking for someone else, somewhere else, to do something else that we want him, uh, that we want to, to take place. And so we look at something, we say, somebody should do something about that. Well, could it be that the someone that God wants to do something about somewhere is actually us? And if that's the case, then maybe in the, the, the passage that we're going to learn in chapter 4 of Esther, when Esther is asked the question, what if God has placed you here for such a time as this? That maybe the, the reason that you're here in this very place at this very time at this very hour is for this very thing, to do the thing that only you can do. You see, that's the message that Esther teaches us. That's the message, really, of of this book, is that God has you in this place, in this time, for such a time as this. And that sometimes we look on and we say, man, I don't know why God has me here, why things are going this way in my life, and why things have kind of worked out this way. And, and, And here's the answer, is that God has you here for a purpose, has you where you are for a purpose, and that He's going to reveal it to you to do something for such a time as this when He chooses to reveal it to you. Now, I've got to tell you something about the book of Esther before we get started. And that is this, that the book of Esther doesn't start with like, you know, uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and it kind of like leads us in, right? It doesn't do that. What, what, what the book of Esther does is it just drops us into the action. And so what I want to do is I've got to give you a little bit of some historical background to, you know, so I'm going to go history channel on you for a minute. So just kind of like expect that for a minute or two. Because I've got to share that with you so that you know exactly what it is that we're dropping into. Because if I don't tell you this, you're not going to really understand the frame of mind and the worldview that people have as we're, as we're going into this. So let me set the scene for you. The book of Esther takes place around the year 483 B.C. Now, the Jewish people, what's happening in 483 B.C.? It's been almost a hundred years since the Jews have been kicked out of the land of Israel. Now, the Jewish people have been kicked out of the land of Israel because they began worshiping other gods, the gods of the nations that surrounded Israel. And God had repeatedly warned them that if they worshiped other gods, that he would kick them out of the land because he had always told them, it's not your land, the land is mine, but I am giving it to you. And I will, as long as you follow me, the land is yours. But the day that you don't follow me, I will take it back and I will remove you from the land. And so they decided that they didn't want to follow God. They wanted to follow the other gods of the other nations. And here's what took place is that he said, OK, then you've got to go. So I'm going to read to you from and I hope you have your notes handy of you get the pen in your hand. I hope you've got your Bible that you brought with you because you're going to need all three this morning. But we're going to start in this passage I gave you in Second Chronicles that says this. It says the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people. And his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets. Until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary. And spared neither young men nor young women, old men or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small. 
and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. And he set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all of the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land then enjoyed its Sabbaths all the time of its desolation. It rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So I want you to understand in 586. Well, let me back up a little bit more in 609 B.C. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came in and basically said, guess what? I'm in charge now. He didn't destroy anything, but he took some of um, he took like the most talented, the uh, higher ranking officials, their kids and all that, and took them back to Babylon. Now, those of you that are a little more familiar with the Bible and you remember the story of Daniel um, and, and him as a young man going to Babylon, that's when that happens. In 606 B.C., three years later, they tried to rebel. At, uh, Israel tried to rebel against Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar came back and he said, listen, if you rebel, I will destroy the city. And so they, they, they played it cool for about, oh, I don't know. Uh, about 20 years or so. And then in 586 B.C., um, they rebelled again, and Nebuchadnezzar kept his promise. And he came in, he destroyed the wall of Jerusalem, he killed thousands of people, he destroyed the palaces, he destroyed the temple, he burned it to the ground, and then he left Jerusalem as a shell of what it was. I mean, it was just totally destroyed. And then he left saying, I told you that this is what I was going to do. Now, but here's the thing, is that God was using... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to judge his people. But here's the other thing that God said in the book of Jeremiah is that God was going to judge Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon for the harshness in which they used. And so even though Nebuchadnezzar thought that his kingdom was going to last forever, it didn't. And so now I'm going to fast forward to you. I'm going to fast forward about 50 years from 586 to 539. I told you I was going to go history channel. So just, you know, just bear with me for a minute. It's 539 B.C. and the Medes and the Persians come in and they um, take over what they conquer the Babylonians. They conquer the city of Babylon. And now where Babylon had been the major ruling power of the world, now the Medes and the Persians come in and they are the ruling power of the world. Now that happens until about, I don't know, 330 B.C. And then a guy you may have heard of named Alexander comes in and he conquers the known world. Until, um, you know, somewhere, you know, 80 B.C., somewhere around there. And then the Roman Empire comes to power, or maybe like 160 B.C. Uh, the Roman Empire comes to power, and then they continue, and you kind of know the story. Caesar, he's got a salad out and all that. Um, uh, all right, so, the, but the story of Esther takes place while the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, this, this group of people that have now, uh, they, they have this partnership, and so now they are ruling together, the Medes and the Persians, and um, it's 483 B.C. Babylon has been wiped out. It's now been 100 years since, the, since the, the Israel has been uh, disposed from their land and they're living in this area. They're living all over the known world at this time. Now, it gives us a glimpse of, uh, of history, but here's what it also does. It tells us the world in which Esther that we're going to learn about in our next study is, is thrown into. Now, one of the things that's important for us to note is this, is that one of the things that God does in the Bible is that he puts two people together to give us contrast. He'll take, um, for example, like Cain and Abel. 
and he'll put them together so we can see the contrast of one who follows God and one doesn't, one who doesn't. He'll take someone like uh, Jacob and Esau, right, the two brothers, one who loves and follows God and one who does not. He'll take uh, David and Saul, two kings, one who, who obeys God, one who does not, and he puts them together. And he does the same thing with Esther and the king of the Medes and the Persians at this time by the name of Ahasuerus. Esther, in our next study, is we're going to see a person who's living an engaged life and what an engaged life looks like. What we're going to see in this study is, with Ahasuerus, is what a disengaged life looks like. Now, a dis, what is a disengaged life? A disengaged life essentially is one that decides whose only interest is ease and comfort and making my life easier at the expense of everyone else. That, there's a problem with that. The problem with that is, and what we're going to learn, what we're going to learn this morning in, in, in the book of Esther, is that all of us, every single one of us that are here, have the potential for greatness and the potential to do great things. But I want to tell you something, that all of it, the potential to do great things, comes at a price. Nobody achieves great things and they say, well, how did you do it? And they, nobody says, well, it was really easy. It was so simple. No, nobody says that. Those of us that maybe have written down some goals for 2010, some resolutions that we say we're going to change and make 2010 different than 2007, 2008, 2009, and we want to make things, make things different, Here, here's the thing that happens. is that What we're going to do is nobody actually, who's achieved those goals that we talked to says, well, how did you do it? Man, it was so easy. No, they say it took discipline, it took hard work, maybe it took blood, sweat, tears, and pain to make it happen. But then they say this, because we did it, the payoff was worth it. And my friends, that really is the key. The message that we have in the book of Esther is that we can either embrace this and engage and live the kind of life that God wants us to live, or we can run from it and live less of a life, half of the life, or less that God wants us to to live. You see, that's why this book is so important. And that's why this book is so important as we kick off a brand new year. Because if we want 2010 to be different than years previous, it's going to take one thing from us. It's going to take a willingness to engage. Let's start in, cha- in chapter 1 of Esther in verse 1. Here's what we're going to start. If you have your Bible, grab it. Here we go. It says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when those days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And they were... They were of white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble floors. The couches were gold and silver on mosaic pavement and alabaster, turquoise and white and black marble. They served drinks and golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's wisdom. 
Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, let me give you the first point of here and what a disengaged life looks like. A disengaged life, number one, is devoted to pleasure. It's devoted to pleasure. You see, it's so interesting, isn't it? Um, and, you know, like a message like this and what I'm talking about, here's what it can come off like. It can come off like, you know, Bob's not, in, not, not he's, he frowns on people having fun. Bob doesn't like it. God doesn't like it. You know, the, you know, the Bible's not into. No, listen, I am like the biggest fan of fun that there is. But here's what I also know is that fun is what you do on the way to having a meaningful life. It's not the goal of a, a meaningful life, because the, the, here's the thing. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this. I really am. But do you know that everything that we got for Christmas this year in five years is probably going to be at the dump? Now, think about that. It, it really is. Think about what, do you even remember what you got for Christmas five years ago? Probably not. You don't even own it anymore. That's the weird part of it. Um, that's why, like, sometimes we'll drive down, my, my wife and our family, we'll drive down 57th uh, Avenue, and I'll roll down the windows when we get to the, the one mountain that's in Miami. And, uh, and, and I'll say, and I'll roll it down, and I'll say, breathe it in, baby. Breathe it in. That's all the stuff we couldn't live without. You know, like, I remember, I remember being, um, well, I was about six, seven years old. I was seven. So it was 1980. No jokes. Um, right. Seven years old. It was 1980. And um, I remember being with my dad and walking through a Sears. Um, and we're walking through Sears. And, and I remember right there. I remember the I vividly remember the first time I saw the Atari 2600. Right. What's up? What's up, Pac-Man? All right. All right. The response would be, what's up, Donkey Kong? Uh, so, and I, but I remember seeing it, and I remember that they had, it was like, you know, asteroids, combat. Remember the, that was the game that it came with? It was combat. Anyway, uh, I'm really uh, dating myself now. Um, well, anyway, so I, I remember seeing that, and I remember, like, there being this line, this, like, crowd of kids. And I remember seeing it, and I remember actually holding the joystick, you know, because it was a joystick, and one button. Now, I know those of you that are younger are like, one button. One button that, you know, I have like a special joystick that's like 18 buttons. I can't even play video games now. You know, I can't. My daughter has to teach me. My daughter's three. She's like, no, Bobby, it's like this. She teaches me features on my iPhone that I don't know how to use. Anyway, um, so anyway, so but I remember like using the joystick, right? And I remember it was the game Asteroids. If you remember that, so I'm trying to like blow up the little asteroids. and, and, uh, And I'm like, and I remember saying to myself at seven years old, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Now, I was seven, so I had seen a lot. You know, I knew my parents, my brother, my sister, and like four other people. And in my vast experience, that is the greatest thing I had ever seen. And so, and then I remember when I got the Atari 2600 for Christmas. And then I also remember the day that I threw the Atari 2600 in the garbage. And I remember thinking, this is the biggest piece of junk I've ever seen in my life. Everybody knows that Nintendo is the way of the future because it's got... Because listen, listen, the thing about that was awesome about Nintendo, it had two buttons, right? Atari 2600 had the one red button, but this had two buttons. Woo! Like now we're really, now we're really there, right? And uh, by the way, I, I have a, like a soft spot for, for the Nintendo because uh, Super Mario Bros. is actually the only game I've ever beaten in my life. And uh, that, like after everyone was on to like, you know, the, the whatever the set, Nintendo, what was it, the second one called? Super Nintendo, thank you. Uh, as you can tell, I'm like very versed in this. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I think you get the idea. 
is that, you know, the, 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 the thing that's so important is this, is that fun is awesome. And I'm not saying that, listen, if your life, if you're not having fun in your life, something is probably wrong. But listen, let's not make the mistake of thinking that fun is the goal of life. Some people think that fun is the goal of life and then they get to the end of their life and realize I was completely disengaged and what I should have been engaged in. And I realized that life was happening and I completely missed it because I thought that I was that it was supposed to be just about having fun. But listen, fun is a byproduct of doing what it is that you're supposed to be doing in life and engaging in what God wants you to engage in. It's the byproduct. It's not the goal itself. The problem that Ahasuerus is having, the lie that he's living, is that he's under the impression that pleasure and ease are the goal of life. King Solomon had the same thoughts that he was having, and maybe it's just kings that have this idea, but I venture to believe that it's not. King Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, is asking himself the question, what's the meaning of life? What's the whole purpose of life? Why are we here? Questions that everybody asks at some point in their their lives. And here's the thing that King Solomon, um, he gets to chapter 2 in in Ecclesiastes and he asks the question. He starts like dabbling in everything and he says, I'm going to get involved in just, you know, foolishness, laughing for no reason, um, just uh, get myself into pleasure, get into drinking, whatever it is, and, 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 and is it worth it? Here's what he says in Ecclesiastes. He says, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So he tries all these different things and he says, it's foolishness. And then he tries this and he tries this and he tries this and he tries this. And then he gets to the end of the book as this older man at the end of his life. And here's what he says in chapter 12. He says, now that all has been heard, let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's it. You want to live an engaged life. That's what it is. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of man. When I think about the highlights of my life thus far... And this is maybe this is true for you as well. But the highlights of my life have been involved, have been related to the sacrifices that I've made for other people, not the things that I've done to actually please myself. When I think about one of the highlights of my life, one of the highlights of my life is when I was in college and I spent a week in Haiti. I spent a week in Haiti sleeping on a wooden church pew when it was about 90 degrees out, which, by the way, they had no air conditioning. They didn't even have windows in the church that we were sleeping at. In fact, um, and, and the pews that were there weren't even that well built, and we were there to fix them partially. There was no electricity. And so we were there. And, and why were we there? And why would, that, why would this you know, Haitian vacation sound so good and this missions trip that I was on? Well, why is that? And here's why. It's because we were there and we were building bunk beds for an orphanage that were there. And we knew that there were kids. I remember there was 13 kids in, in one room that was about, I don't know, a tenth of uh, maybe, um, you know, one, just maybe one section of this stage. There was 13 kids sleeping in and they were sleeping on the floor. And when we left, they all had a bed to sleep on as we built these two and three stacked bunk beds. And I walked away saying, you know what? I spent a week of my life, but I spent a week of my life making a difference in somebody else's life. It's a week that I will always look back and say, that is, that is a week, that week changed me. 
from who I was previously to who I am today. I, I think about money that my wife and I have given away, things that we've done to, to help other people, missionaries that we've supported um, o- over the years. And listen, th- those are the things that actually, th- that actually change who you are. They change the perspective that you have and the way that you think and the way that you view life. As my wife and I have reviewed our budget for this last year and then we're kind of going into this year and we're talking about where it all went because guess what? When you get to the year, at the end of the year, do you have you noticed this? It all goes somewhere. Have you noticed that? It all goes somewhere. And so we said, you know, so when we look at where it all went and we say, well, where are we so most excited about where it all went? We say, man, we're really glad that we continued to give to the Lord and we're tried to be even more generous this year than we were last year. And then we were glad that we even sacrificed more for this new campus and this open door offering that we're doing. And we were very excited about that. And listen, uh, you know, so when as I look at these experiences coming here almost 10 years ago to come and risking everything to come and start this church because we really believe that God had called us here and that if we came here and started preaching the gospel and teaching, teaching the Bible, that people who were far from God would come to know God. And so you don't understand that every time I meet someone who says, hey, I, 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 I was far from God and I came to know Jesus here in this church. That every time someone comes up to me and talks to me about that, it's just one more time that God fulfills the promise that, that he said to us when he called us to come and start this place. You know, um, I'm, I'm not going to lay on my deathbed and, and say, you know, you know, man, what, you know, people ask me, Bob, what, what was the things that really were so meaningful in your life? And it's like, you know, man, when I bought that car, that was so meaningful to me. That's not what's going to be meaningful. It's going to be all these sacrifices that were made that actually changed me, that engaged me into the person that God wanted me to become. The problem that Ahasuerus has is that he's having this big party about all of his stuff, right? He thinks that that is the, the, the point of life. Listen, he has this party. Did you catch in verse 4 how long he said the party was? It went on for six months. This party. It's just, you know, like life is just a, you know, and it's like, you're the king. Aren't you supposed to be doing something good for your people? Well, maybe. See, sometimes we know it and we don't do it. Here's what Jesus said. He said, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. And my friends, that's the key. Many times we know the right thing to do. But listen, we're blessed not when we know the right thing to do. We're blessed when we do the right thing. The story continues in verse 9. Here's what it says. Or verse 10. It said, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded. Here's some tough names here. Um, Mehuman. Bizza. Harbona. If you're having kids, you may want to consider some of these names. Bigtha. Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. By the way, who names their kid Carcass? I don't really understand that. Um, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. Now, these guys were his assistants, and this is what he says. He says he commands them to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. And therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, let me give you the second one. The second thing about a disengaged life is that a disengaged life is, number two, consumed by pride. It's consumed by pride. Now, let me just be honest with, with us and I'll, I'll admit it for all of us. OK, all of us struggle with pride to one degree or another. 
uh, you know, if you don't agree with me, next time that you see a picture of yourself in a group of people, uh, you know, think about how you judge whether that's a good picture or not. Now, if you say, well, see, what I like to do is pray and then view the overall comp- uh, you know, composition. There's a word for that. Baloney. All right. Here's what you do. You look at yourself and if you look good, it's a great picture. All right. That's what it is. Th- that, that, that's the deal. Right. I, this happened to me when we were picking out our Christmas picture. This is the picture we decided on uh, of our family. Yeah. Um, now, I like this picture, but this is not the picture that I wanted. The picture that I wanted, I thought was even better. And I thought, Carrie, let's use this one. And she said, Bob, why would we use that one? My eyes are closed and I'm looking away from the camera. And I'm like, yeah, but I look awesome. And she says, well, maybe let's not. So she picks another one. And I'm like, you know, I look like I'm having like some kind of attack. You know, you know, like in that picture, she's like, yeah, but I look good in that one. And I said, well, let's compromise then. And we chose that one, which uh, she looks fantastic in because as I've been commanded to say she looks fantastic in all pictures um or i've been trained to say um but here's the thing and you can take the picture down um but the 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 deal is this to to a degree that's helpful and that's healthy because everybody wants to look good everybody wants to present themselves in the best way possible right most of us showered before we got here and i would like to say on behalf of all of us thank you uh for doing that um but listen there's a point where you where like but there's that's the healthy side But then you get to a point where you cross a line and now you start to think that everything is about you. And you start thinking more of yourself than you ought to. And everything is about you. And that's when pride begins to take over your life. We start looking at the stuff we've got, the position that we hold, the influence we have. And we start believing that the world could not get by without us. And that is the world that this king lives in. That he is absolutely consumed with himself. You see, why would... Vashti, the queen, get invited to this party in the first place. You see, I told you about verse 4. Let me just, I put it in your notes. Let me just read it to you. Uh, Verse 4 of Esther chapter 1. It says, For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. This guy decided to have a party, and this was the theme. Let's have a party about how awesome I am. That was the theme of the party. And here's what he did. He invited all these people over and all he did was parade his stuff. Well, look, then I took over these people. This is all the stuff I conquered from them. And then I have all of this. This is all my artwork. That's going to go by. And then these are all my musical instruments. That's going to go by. These are all the people who serve me here. And now all of this happens. And then you know what? And it takes him, listen, 180 days. This is how much stuff this guy has amassed in these 127 provinces that he oversees from India to Ethiopia. If you're not familiar with geography, that is like a huge amount of real estate, okay? That's like half of two continents that he's, that he's um, in, in charge of. And then here's what happens is that as he's thinking about all of his stuff and all of the property that he owns, he says, oh, that's right, there's my wife too. And I could parade her as part of my stuff and all of the possessions that I have. And so he calls his wife, the queen, and says, why don't you come out here because you're really beautiful and I just want them to see all, all of my stuff because I've already shown them uh, the rest of my stuff and now I'll show them you because you're part of my property as well. And she says, no, I'm not coming to your party. You've got to understand that in that culture it was absolutely unheard of. It was absolutely unheard of on three levels for a man to say, for a woman to say no to a man for a wife to say no to her husband, but absolutely for a queen to say no to her king. I mean, in that culture, it was absolutely unheard of for that to take place. 
But you've got to understand, why would she want to go to that party? Do I want to go to a party with a bunch of drunk guys who have been in this drinking party for six months, by the way, and be treated like a piece of property? But second, the traditional Hebrew reading of this passage is this, is that because what we read, it says that, um, they, she, he, that um, King Ahasuerus wanted Queen Vashti to come wearing her royal crown. Okay. The traditional Hebrew reading is that she wanted uh, Queen Vashti to come bringing, wearing her royal crown and nothing else. So the idea is, put the crown on in your birthday suit and get over here. And so she decides, you know what, um, I'm not going to do that. Well, why is she not going to do that? Well, I want to digress for a second because I think this is really important. Um, because what's going to happen in this story actually parallels perfectly with what's going to what happens later on in a new testament story uh in the story of john the baptist now let me read you because when i read you this passage in mark chapter six you can say well it sounds like it's a king throwing a party just like in our story a king is throwing a party let me read it to you it says on his birthday herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of galilee same deal and when the daughter of herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod in his din- and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. And at once the girl hurried in to the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, here's the thing. I want you later in the story of Esther. I want you to jump back. That same phrase, this I will give you up to half my kingdom. That is a phrase that kings used. And the next verse in Esther chapter 3, the king, then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. The important thing to note, and here's why I say that. The important thing for us to note is that Vashti ends up the same way as John the Baptist. John gets beheaded because he speaks out against Herod's illegal marriage to Herodias. And then, interestingly enough, she says no to the king. And with the Talmud, and if you're not familiar with what the Talmud is, the Talmud is this multi-volume Jewish commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures. What the rabbis teach in the Talmud is that Vashti was beheaded for disobeying the, 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 the king. That's why it says in the verses that we're going to read in just a moment that her, uh, her crown should be taken off. Her crown was taken off and her head was taken off as well. And the point is this. This is the, this is the thing that's important. The point is, is that the disengaged person believes that the goal of life is to collect as much stuff and control as many people as humanly possible. That's the disengaged person. Jesus would say it this way. He would say, watch out and be on guard against all manner of greed. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, Jesus taught that the goal was not getting other people to serve you. That the goal of life was serving others. That that was an engaged life. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew chapter 20. He said this, he said, and when the ten heard about it, they were indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must 
be your servant. You can't do anything of significance in your life or my life. We can never do anything of significance if we're consumed by impressing people. Because greatness, according to Jesus, is found in service. So listen, and that's the thing. You know, if you ask people who serve around here, and there's like hundreds of people that serve in this church, you want to know something? I'm going to tell you a little secret. Um, most people who begin serving, because it was the reason I began serving, I thought I served because it was the right thing to do. But you know what happened? And just like many people, they started serving because they thought it was the right thing to do. But then this is what they found, the same thing that I found. is that I served because I thought I was the right thing to do and I was going to bless someone else. But then I started serving and realized the person who got most blessed was me. And how is that? Because that's the economy of the kingdom of God. I seek to be a blessing and then God is the one who ends up blessing me. And that's the thing that's amazing about um, one of the things that I'm most excited about in the new campus that we're starting in Miramar um, later next month is that it now takes all of these people that have been serving. There's a group of people that are actually transferring from here to the new campus. And what that does is it creates all of these opportunities now for people to get involved and serve. And so now it's like people say, man, I want to draw closer to God and, 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 I, and I, want to be, I want to know him better. Then now here's the opportunity that we have. The opportunity that we have is to serve to a greater degree or take the first step and begin to serve. So listen, if 2010 is going to be the year that you say, man, I really want to draw close to God this year. Then listen, let this be the year that you say, I want to begin to serve. Because listen, the thing that propelled my spiritual life as a young Christian one of the probably three or four things that I did that propelled my life as a young Christian was when I began serving. On the back of your connection card, the one that you filled out earlier, you'll see that it says um, you've got two opportunities when it comes to serve. One is at the very bottom, it says begin serving at Calvary Fellowship. That's here. Or if you say, you know what, I'd love to serve because I live a little closer to, to Miramar. I actually drive from Miramar or whatever the case. I'd love to serve there. Then check off that you want to be part of the Miramar launch team and get involved and serving there. But the key is this is that if you say, man, I want to know God better, then here's what Jesus said, that greatness is service. It's not getting people to serve us. It's serving other people. Well, let me tell you how the story ends. In verse 13, it says, And then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshena and Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Mersena, and Memekan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and ranked highest in his kingdom, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law, because she did not obey the command of Ahasuerus brought, uh, brought to her by the eunuchs? And Memekan answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she did not come. So this very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to, their, to the, all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen and there will be excessive contempt and wrath. Verse 19, it says, And if it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out before him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be alter, altered, that Vashti shall no longer 
uh, come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which will which he will proclaim throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both small and great. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memekin. And then he sent letters to all of the king's provinces in each province in its own script and to each of the people in his own language that he should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's where we're going to bring uh, this to a conclusion. Here's the third point. A disengaged life is obsessed with appearances. Obsessed with appearances. Um, on Thursday, on New Year's Eve, uh, my family went to the Miami Children's Museum. And as we were there, if you've been there, you know that there's like a subway there um, to eat, and that's where we had lunch. Now, the thing that was really interesting was that uh, we're sitting there, and then there's um, this family behind us. I'm not sure if the dad was there because I didn't hear him, but I heard the mom. And uh, there was a girl who was there, and she gets up. She's probably my daughter's age, so she's about three. She gets up, and she opens the door to leave the subway to go back into the museum. And so, um, and so the, the mom says, hey, and I forgot what her name was, you know, hey, stop and come back here. And so the girl has the door open, and she just, like, has her back there, and she's looking at her mom like, you know, what are you going to do about it? And, um, and so the mom says, now, you better get back here, because if I have to count to three and you're not back here, and then the girl then starts walking backwards like she's leaving she's watching her mom but she's going to leave towards the museum like she's exiting the restaurant and she goes one two and then the girl is looking like yeah i've been here before which there's two hilarious things one is about the empty threats that parents make which is just another message entirely um because the girl was like you know if you're if i count to three you know and the girl's thinking like yes you'll go to four five and six because nothing ever happens um and sure enough, she counted to three and nothing happened. Um, but that's, I'll leave that for another, another time. Um, but the funny thing, the thing that I thought was so interesting was my daughter's reaction to this whole scene. Because as the mom is telling her daughter to sit down and the girl is not listening, my daughter, my daughter Mia, who's sitting across from me, she's, she's like this, watching the girl. And then she looks at us like, what is this? And then she looks over and the girl's not listening. She's backing out of the, the subway restaurant and she's looking back at us like, what is happening here? And then, um, and th th this is the part that I found amazing, is that then it kind of clicks like this girl is disobeying her mom. And then my daughter, my daughter Mia turns and like shoots her the dirtiest look like, what are you doing not listening to your mommy? You know, you know. And uh, and it, I'm telling you, she had this look like, if you don't listen to your mommy, I'm going to go over there and take care of business. I mean, that was like the look that she was giving, right? Now, that's not even the point. The point was, this was all distracting my daughter. And as I'm doing it, uh, as, as she's doing this, um, I have this clear white uh, plastic cup and I'm pouring some, I have this bottle of Sprite and I'm pouring some Sprite into this plastic cup. So I take a sip and I'm watching all of this. My daughter gives a dirty look. I think it's hilarious. My wife and I are laughing like, can you believe my, Mia getting so like, like emotionally involved in this like little drama happening here? This is amazing. And so we're watching this. I'm sipping on this. I mean, it was way better than the lunch, which gave me food poisoning, uh, which that's another story I'll save for another time. Um, and so, so I'm watching this whole thing, right? And then um, I, I, I fill it up and I put it down and then the whole thing finally ends and she turns around and she goes, 
And so my daughter's like wiped out by this. And she goes, ooh, water. And so she grabs it. And right, my, my, my daughter doesn't drink soda uh, just because we want her to stay sane. Um, and, and so... And so she's going to drink the soda, and right before I'm like, no, don't. Right, right, you know, it's like, you, know, you ever have those moments that like are in slow motion? Don't do it. And so, but before I can, she's like chugging the, the little plastic cup, which looks like water, but it's actually Sprite. Well, she puts it down, and she goes, <laughs> like she stuck her finger in a light socket, like, and she's like, woo! And, she's, and then she says, Bobby, that wasn't water. That was very spicy. Yeah, that's what she says. That was because anything that's like carbonated to her is very spicy, and uh, and that's when her and I had this conversation about how looks can be deceiving, um, and 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 this is the thing. Now, the, the the this thing, right? Because what appears on the outside, what happens on the inside, it, it can be two totally different things. As my daughter learned, she took a sip of Sprite. See, there's this passage. I'm putting it, we're putting it on the screen for you. It says this in, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's two truths being spoken there. Man looks on the outward appearance. That's a true statement. And God looks at the heart. Now, the thing that is important for us to understand is sometimes we will sacrifice one for the other. Sometimes we will say, I will sacrifice my integrity for the sake of appearance. Sometimes we'll say, well, all that matters is the inside, and so I don't really care about the appearance. Well, we don't realize that there's two truths that are being spoken. Um, and, and just as, as a, uh, by way of illustration, I, I, Carrie and I have this friend that we've known for years and years. And um, she takes this verse, like, it, she only believes in half of this verse, like, apparently, because she says, you know, um, she doesn't wear makeup. Um, she's like, this, she's a sweetheart of a girl, but she, does, she won't wear makeup. She dresses in, like, baggy shirts and, like, you know, like surfer type shorts, flip flops, and she, that's what she wears to work. And uh, and then and her thing is, her, this is her philosophy. Her philosophy is, if a guy's gonna marry me, he's gonna marry me because of what's on the inside and not on the outside. And I remember her telling me that, telling us that whole thing over dinner like 12 years ago. By the way, for those keeping score, she's still single. Um, and it's because she doesn't understand this. A man does look on the outward appearance that it does matter. But it, do, it doesn't matter as much as what happens internally. And the key is, is that we don't sacrifice the internal for the external. That's why we don't compromise our integrity for the sake of the external. You ever have this happen? Here's how we do this sometimes. Here, well, the way we do this is this. You ever get into, an, uh, in, in, um, I was going to say an argument. You don't get into an argument. If you're a Christian, you don't get an argument with your wife. You have what I like to call intense fellowship uh, with your spouse. Um, so sometimes it gets into like extreme fellowship and that's something else. But um, but so you have like, you know, this moment of like you're having a disagreement and you're kind of going back and forth. You ever have this? And I've had this a few times in my life where you're you're arguing one point, your spouse is arguing the other point, And then you come to this realization. Oh, my, they're right. You ever have that? But then you say, but I'm in too deep to tell them they're right. I, that, that ship sailed a long time ago. And so you're like. They're right, I'm wrong, but I'm still digging my heels in because there's got to be a way to get out of this. And so you start doing this. And, and, and then all the while, because you just don't want to say, you're right. You have made an excellent case, and I, I realize that you are right in this, and I am wrong. And the thing is, it's like to admit that is to admit some kind of weakness, and then they'll always bring that up again. Remember the last time we argued and I was right? 
Yes, but that was like when Carter was president. That's besides the point. I'm still, this is just exactly like that. Um, and, and so, and, and the, the, the key is this, and this is the thing that's so important, is that what we tend to think is that if we admit that we're wrong, people will, res- will respect us less. But here's the truth, is that when we actually have the wisdom and presence of mind to say, you know what, what you're saying makes sense, I was wrong. People don't respect us less, they end up respecting us more. A Ahasuerus can't live in that world. Because if he did, he would look on and say, you know what, me and all of these princes of these 127 provinces, we've been drinking for the last six months, maybe our judgment was slightly impaired. When I asked my wife to come out in here and parade like a Playboy bunny, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. Um, instead, I'm not going to continue this insanity. But here's what he does. Because he doesn't want to appear weak in front of his princes and his lieutenants. What he does is he just continues in this. And now Vashti loses her life according to, to, to the tradition. Why? Because he just can't find himself. Why? Because a disengaged life is obsessed with appearances. And, and, and you might look at this and say, this doesn't seem like a good ending to the story, and it seems like a rough way to begin a year to talk about somebody losing their life and the bad guy winning. Well, here's what you've got to know. The story's not over yet. I'm just giving you the introduction to the story that we're going to learn because here's what we're going to find. This king who's full of pride and full of himself, God is actually going to use that in an amazing way to save the Jewish people and in an incredible way and give us a picture of what God is going to ultimately do in the person of Jesus. And see, this is the thing that's incredible. We just can't see it yet. The thing that people have, what some say about the book of Esther, and this is a true statement, is that the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Prayer is never mentioned in the book of Esther. The Bible is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Sacrifice, Jerusalem, Torah, anything. The sacrificial system, none of that is mentioned in the book of Esther. And so people will say that, oh, God is totally silent in the book of Esther. And that's the part that's not true. Because as we go through this book, and next week we're going to take chapter 2, and you can read ahead. Well, here's what you're going to find. What you're going to find is is that God is behind the scenes orchestrating some amazing things to take place. That could only be Him that orchestrates it. And so what we're going to learn in this study, and listen, what's happening here is the same thing that's happening in your life and in mine at times, is that when we think, no, God is silent. No, maybe God isn't silent. Maybe God is actively working in the background to make this very thing come to pass. See, could that be what's happening in your life right now? That you're like, man, where is God and why isn't God working? That maybe God is working in your life right now. And maybe he's orchestrating some things and working in the background. And here's what he asks of you and I. He asks us to be engaged. You see, we look at some of the goals and resolutions and plans that we have for 2010. And we just kind of want God to do it, right? Like maybe one of the goals is, man, I want to get out of debt in 2010. That's my goal. And we just think, well, maybe I'll just get my credit card bill and it'll be like Monopoly, bank error in your favor. And and, and it'll all just be zeroed out. Well, maybe that's not what's going to happen. Maybe what's going to happen is you're going to have to do some hard work and you have to do some planning and there's going to have to be some sacrifice. And then as you begin to make those changes and learn the lessons that God wants you to learn that may be there, You're going to take a step and God is going to meet you and then he's going to do something amazing. And you say, God was at work this whole time and I didn't even see it. 
You want to do something in your relationships with your wife or with your kids. And you say, man, I just I want to change this. I want to turn the ship around. And, and you say, well, maybe I, they'll wake up one morning and just tell me that all is forgiven. Or maybe they won't. Maybe you're going to have to make one right decision after another, after another, after another. And instead of saying, please take me back, I've changed. Maybe they're going to take you back after you've changed. And that it's then when you start making the right decisions and you start following what God has said that you realize God has been working all along. I just didn't see it. Maybe you want your relationship with God to grow in 2010. Then here's what the Bible says. It's such an interesting phrase. It says this in James chapter 4. It says, draw close to God and God will draw close to you. But God is waiting for us. Isn't that interesting? Like God, it's like some of us, we would think the Bible would say, God has drawn close to you, now you draw close to him. But instead, it's like God, the Bible says this, you take a step towards God, and God will take a step towards you. Because the truth is, is that every one of us is as close to God as we want to be, as translated through our actions. And so maybe what it is, is that we have to take a step, and take another step. And take another step. And as we begin to take steps in God's direction, then guess what happens? We realize that God has been doing some amazing things all along. And I did not even see it. And maybe you're here and you say, that's what my hope is. My hope is is that I want God to work in my life. And I, I don't want to live another year without drawing close to him. Can I, can I just tell you that that's the reason why, I brought, why God brought you here today? Because if you've never asked Jesus to come into your life and to forgive you because of his work on the cross, then listen, that's the first order of business. That God wants to forgive you. That's the reason why Jesus came into this world and died this brutal death on a cross and was buried and rose again from the dead to show that he died for you. And that by his power, by rising from the dead, that his sacrifice is sufficient to forgive us of every possible thing that we could have done wrong. And that through that faith and belief and by receiving that free gift, here's what we have. We have the opportunity to start over. And if you, if you want to make that decision, can I just encourage you in this? You can do that right now. You can call, we're going to pray in a second. You can call out to God and say, God, forgive me. Thank you for Jesus. Because I want to start over right now. You can pray that prayer in the quietness of your own heart. And according to the Bible, God says that he will hear it, that he will respond, and that he will act. My friends, that's my prayer for you. This year, 2010, can be very, very different than 2007, 8, and 9. But here's the one thing that God asks of us. He asks us to engage.